0: 1 Peter chapter 4, once again. We'll read the first six verses. 1 Peter chapter 4. That's all here. God's holy word. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. And the Lord will add his blessing to that reading from his Word, for his name's sake. Would you bow with me just for a moment? Let's all seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we turn now to the book of the Lord, confessing our need of the Holy Spirit to preach, to understand, to believe, and to obey. Bear me along, I pray, throughout the message Bear up thy people, draw them to thine own heart, and grant, Lord, this will be a word of refreshment for them, a word that will guide their steps, that will guard their hearts against the inroads of unbelief and sin. And may we know this morning what it is to have God come down and bless us with his presence and power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I don't know what you would have said before we began our study of 1 Peter. But if someone, a friend, were to ask you now what are some of the main topics Peter addresses in this epistle, I'm sure all of you would say that Peter wrote a lot about suffering in this in this book, for they were indeed going through great fiery trials. But you would also add that the suffering they were going through was all part of God's plan for them. It wasn't a matter of happenstance. It was his way of strengthening their faith in him. And if you thought a little bit more, you would also tell your friend that Peter told these believers that they needed to submit to the suffering Submit to the fiery trials, to endure them, and not give up their hope in God, and so walk away from it all. But also is a key theme, this first epistle, you would remember how often Peter reminded them of Christ's sufferings, and how he endured and didn't walk away from it all, because it was hard. And that they were to follow in his steps. Because he left them an example. And if you were able to think a little bit longer about the answer to your friend's question, you would say that Peter... Peter has a whole lot to say about holiness. In the believer's life. And I think upon reflection you would probably come to the conclusion that this whole epistle is really, it's really all about pursuing a Christ-like life. It's all about following the example of Jesus Christ. It's all about being like him, because that's what holiness is about. Holy living is not an entity in itself. It's not fulfilling a list of do's and don'ts. It's really about living like Jesus. And Peter has so much to say about it. Suffering, yes. Submission, yes. But sanctification, yes. Read over those first three chapters again and mark how often Peter speaks of obedience, of being holy in all manner of conversation. And laying aside all malice and all guile, hypocrisies, envies, evil speaking, abstain from fleshly lusts, eschew evil and do good, be followers of that which is good, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. He just keeps piling one thing upon another. Without a doubt, there are quite a number of do's and don'ts in this epistle. Quite a number. And let's let's gladly face that. God's law, the written revelation of his will, is comprised of thou shalt and thou shalt not. That's God's law. It's a divine declaration of what God requires and what God forbids. Of what pleases the Lord and what offends him. And it is that very law that sets the standard for life in the kingdom of God. It's the law of the kingdom. The kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And all those saved belong to that kingdom. They're subjects of the king. And the law of God is their law. And as the king, he has every right to tell them, do this and don't do that. Now for the child of God. There's no problem with that. There's no problem because the child of God delights in the law of the Lord. He takes pleasure in it. He doesn't fight it, doesn't try to excuse it, make it say something that it doesn't. He doesn't want to change it. He doesn't want to water it down, to make it weaker than it is, or go beyond what it says. No, it's, it's the law of the Lord. But, but the Christian's great problem is that he has within his soul an enemy to that law. There's a criminal element in the heart of every child of God. A criminal element pastor are you talking about me like that yeah I am you have a criminal element in your heart that delights to commit crimes against God's law it's the law of sin Paul calls it a law that's contrary to God's law The law of sin in the flesh that wars against the law of God that's in the heart. And and, and Peter, he recognizes this fact. He recognizes there is this conflict, this spiritual warfare, when he writes, as we saw last week in verse 1, Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Arm yourselves. Put this armor on. Because you're in a battle with sin. So I made the point last week that there is, there is a victory over sin that is to be fought for and won, just from the fact that you said, arm yourselves. Remember, this battle we're in with this, with this enemy of sin takes place primarily in our mind, our, our thinking before you commit the act of transgressing the law there is a battle in your mind getting you to think a certain way. There's the battle. So God has provided an armor for the Christian's mind, for the Christian's thinking that he must make use of in this spiritual warfare. It is to his detriment if he ignores that. It will not be a a, A happy camper, it won't be a good day if he ignores this command. This is the Holy Ghost saying, arm yourselves with the same thought. The fundamental truth that makes up this armor is the fact that Christ, Christ Jesus in our stead died to sin. That's the same mind, that's the same thought that Peter says that we are to use in our daily fight with sin. If we don't put that into practice, we're going to have a rough go of it. It's going to be rough as it is anyway, but if we don't actually... You know, you would think you'd step back. God knows what he's doing, and he knows why he tells us what he tells us, and we just can't ignore him and think that everything's going to go along just nicely for us. No, God says you arm yourselves with this same thinking, that Jesus Christ died to sin in your stead, and legally you died to sin as well. You are done with sin, because he that has died to sin has ceased from sin. That's what he says, is it not? He has died to sin; has ceased from sin. Christ is done with sin. He was victorious over it completely, and we died in Him, and we are done with sin. No longer. No longer can our sin condemn us. Never. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Whatever whatever it does, whatever power it has, and the power is still there, child of God, and you know it right well. Whatever power it has, it can't condemn us. And whatever power it has, that sin no longer has dominion over us. The criminal element is there, but no longer does it have dominion, power, rule over the child of God. We no longer, because of this fact, we stopped living for the flesh, and we started living for God. We no longer live to satisfy the lust, the evil desires of our flesh, but we actually live to, to do the will of God. That's what is true of every Christian. Why is that true? Because sin has been dealt the death blow by Jesus Christ. It's chains, that shackles have been broken forever. Those are just good old hard facts of the gospel. We must believe and we must use. This is the thinking. I'm done with sin. I'm not going to serve you. When the devil comes and the temptations arise, I'm done with that. Because the devil will come along and say, you need this. You have to do this. You've got to get this satisfaction. This is going to be good. And he's a liar. It's then and there that you say, no, you're not my master. You don't tell me what I need. I know you. You're a deceiver. I've been freed from sin. Your chains have been broken. Sin has been dethroned. That's why the the, the the believer now loves what he once hated, and he hates what he once loved. That's a Christian. You can't explain it in any other terms than. There's been a great change that's taken place. He's a new creation in Christ. He ceased from sin. But those facts don't remove the need for Peter to call upon them to, number one, not live to the lusts of men, and number two, to live to the will of God. Verse two, that he should no longer live to the rest of his time in the flesh of the, to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Notice the apostle just doesn't leave it there. He just doesn't say, now you know that you no longer live to please your flesh, but you live to please God and then leave it there and move on. He actually tells them to arm themselves so that they will avoid living to fulfill the lust of the flesh. And they will aspire to please God. And that's what verses 3 to 6 are about. Right motives. He gives them motives for shunning sin and seeking to please the Lord shunning sin, and embracing holiness. So, I've entitled this, if you are interested in titles, sort of sums up what it's about, The Right Motives for Right Living. The Right Motives for Right Living. There are three of them you'll find in this section. First, first motive. Remember, what you were before the lord saved you that will be a motive for you remember what you were before the lord saved you verse 3 for the time past of our life the time past peter's talking about their past how they used to live their lives what they lived for how they walked the course they followed in life as i pointed out last week this reminding christians of the kind of life they lived prior to salvation occurs very frequently in the new testament particularly in the epistles it's in the old testament as well but not so frequent as it is in the new testament yes it's that reminder Telling them to to think about how they used to live before they were saved. It's always done in light of their present state in Christ, their life in Christ. But God never wants us to forget what we were before the Lord saved us. You're not supposed to squash that down and say, I don't want to think about my past. I want you to think about your past. I want you to think about how you lived and what you did. Don't ever forget it. So Peter characterizes their past life as doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in, and he goes to list. Doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked. That word will speaks of inclinations, your desires, your pleasures. The word walk is that common word for the conduct of one's life. The, the Pursuing a course in life. This is, this is your walk. This is your, this is your regular behavior. This is how you'd be characterized. If someone were to say what kind of... A, well, they, 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 they live like this. This is their lifestyle. This is their walk. It's how they behave. This is what you'll find in them. And what kind of course had they pursued in life before the Lord saved them? There are six terms that Peter uses. Let's quickly go through them. Lasciviousness. It means unbridled lust. The word emphasis is on unbridled. Excess of all kinds of sin... Outrageous sin. Shamelessness in the sin. Shame, you know, can, can act as something to check you. You'd be too embarrassed. You'd be ashamed and it kind of holds you back from doing this or that. But not, not lasciviousness. There is no shame. There's no embarrassment. There's nothing that checks you. A life which knows no restraint. A life which dares to sin any sin. And indulge anything the flesh wants. Nothing to check it. You live like that, he said. Then he says lusts. In this case, in the context... Those aren't good lusts. Sometimes that word is used of good desires, good lusting, but not here. Desires for what God forbids. It's wanting what God does not want. Wanting what God has forbidden, evil desires and evil longings. That marked your life. Excess of wine. It's only used here in the New Testament. Literally, it reads, overflowing of wine. Tyndale, in his translation, translated it drunkenness, and that's what it's about. The overflowing of wine, drunkenness. You were drunkards. Revelings their past life he's he's bringing them up that word only occurs two other times in the new testament it spoke of uh, a village festival where the people would come together and have a big party and feasting and then they would go out and in their drunken stupor parade down the streets and singing and shouting and creating havoc they haven't gone away my wife may remember, but when we were living in Pensacola, New Jersey, it was New Year's Eve, and it must have been about two in the morning, and we heard this caterwauling going on outside of our window in the street. It was a very busy street, but it wasn't at one o'clock in the morning. But there was a line of drunks, men and women, a train, one holding on to the other, and dancing and shouting and raising all kinds of hullabaloo reveling. Cops came and that ensued to a fight nothing's changed banquetings well that sounds like a pretty innocent thing doesn't it banquetings you want to know what the word really means drinking bouts drinking bouts you want to know what a modern day term would be keg party You know they bring in a keg of beer for the party and it's just for the purpose of drinking who can hold the most who can drink the most abominable idolatries it's not suggesting that there are some idolatries that are not abominable All of them are an abomination to God. It means unlawful, wicked idolatries that violate God's law. This was your course in life. And I have to say that there is, in that description, someone to this day who's never been saved by the grace of God. This is modern-day society. This is how so many are living their life. This is what they live for. It's about a party. It's about getting drunk. Are getting high, partying, living like an animal, just living for the flesh. Peter's not saying that every every lost sinner lives like that. It's obvious because he says "we" in this, and he didn't. Peter didn't live like that. He's not saying that every law sinner lived like that or, or that you did all of those things before the Lord saved you. You may have never had one drop of alcohol cross your lips before you were saved. You may have never attended a keg party or paraded down a street singing and dancing. But how many of us must confess that we are well aware of what it means to indulge our flesh before the Lord saved us? How many of us know right well what it was like before the Lord saved us to desire the things that God forbids? We want them. God says, no, still we want them. We may have never worshipped the god Zeus or Bacchus, but we had our idols that we set up in the face of God, and they were still idols. We pursued our interest, and we lived for self. We lived as if we were the center of the universe. And so, so Paul will say, and quoting the Old Testament in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not one. But the prophets say we are all as an unclean thing, and our iniquities like the wind have carried us away. That includes all of Now, in reminding them of how they lived before the Lord saved them, what does Peter say? For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. What's he saying? In essence, you have had enough of those things enough of that way of living, you have tried them, and you have, you've come to realize there's no reason, there is no sane reason why I should live like that anymore. I've had enough to tell me it's empty. It's empty. It's useless, profitless. I've had enough. Isn't that our testimony as Christians? Didn't you and didn't we come to Christ one day, ask him to save us because we had had enough of sin and all that comes with it? That's why we sought him. You you, you were brought to face your sin. Why would you seek a savior if you weren't brought to face with your sin one day? And you might not have realized in these terms, but it was as, listen, I don't want this anymore. I don't want this life anymore. I want to change. I want to be saved from my sins. I've had enough of it. That's our testimony. It's enough. You see, Christians are people who've tried what the world has to offer. Who've tried... To do what the world says brings lasting happiness. Whether it be trying uh, exaltation to high places of honor, and wealth, and fame, and for all those things that go with it. Or whether it be trying the lowest and basest of sins. Whether it's high here or down there, you found out, I've had enough. That doesn't satisfy it. That doesn't satisfy the needs of my soul. A Christian has learned only Christ can satisfy. Only Jesus Christ is sufficient for my needs. We we believe that the past is enough of this manner of living. We've had enough of that life to realize we need something else, something far better. That someone is Christ. We remember the past life. To this day, I remember it. How empty, how empty it all was. And I've had enough. And I don't want to go back there. Peter reminds them of this and urging them to holy living. Because Peter knows the devil is going to come along and he's going to paint a different picture of their past life. The devil will come along and paint it as very attractive. And tell you, this, there's, there's, there's a lot of fun to be had or you're missing out on it. No, it's sufficient. We've tried it. Remember the life you lived before the Lord saved you. That's the first motive to right living. Number two, reflect on the response of the ungodly to your living to please God. Do you give much thought to that? What what, what do the ungodly think about you? About how you live your life? Well, if you just blow it off, you're, you're blowing off the Holy Ghost. Because the Holy Ghost has put this in the Word of God to be read, understood, and applied. He brings this up. Verse 4, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Why did he bring that up? This, this past life you live and your past friends, here's what they think about you. Here's what they're saying about you. They think this, you are strange. They think it's strange that you are living like this and not living like them. That word strange means surprised or even shocked. They're surprised. I want you to feel the full force of that word, of their reaction. They are surprised. They are surprised that you left them. They are surprised that you stopped partying with them. They are surprised that you stopped doing this, that, and the other thing, and that you actually started doing this, that, and the other thing. Surprised by it. They're surprised that they run not with you to the same excess of riot. Excess of riot. How about flood of disillusion? Flood of disillusion. A life just completely given over like a flood to the indulging of the flesh. Those who were once your friends now think it's quite strange that you no longer join with them. You no longer go along with them in their pursuits of fun and pleasure. And they don't understand the reasons why you stopped hanging with them. why you won't go here with them or there with them they honestly believe that you when you went and got religion and gave up a life of happiness for a a life what they think is a life of gloom and severity and strictness, and that's no fun. You, you do understand, sidebar here, that this is the very fact that the devil is seeking to make inroads in to the people of God. We are strange. We are strange to the world. Our way of life is strange to them, and it was meant to be that way. We are not to be like them, but to be different from them. We're not to talk like them. We're not to behave. We're not to react. We're not to follow their course of life, their pursuits. And it doesn't have to be all those excessive things. It's just a way of life. You know what's really sad? Sidebar number two. We've come to the place in the church where there are many professing Christians who think, who think, who act, respond as if, well, I don't do this, that, or that other thing, and I do do this, that. They actually think that, you're strange, man. You are really weird. You're odd. You're, you're, you're off the way out there. How how sad that we've actually gotten to the church in a place like that. It seems to me it's all about having fun now. Having a good time. I had no problem with having a good time and having fun. I, I enjoy it. but we're talking about holy living. We're talking about something that is sacred to God, that is Christ-likeness. We're talking about that which pleases God or that which offends him. The ungodly think it's strange. You live like you do. Peter is telling them to reflect on that. They think you're foolish. They would say in modern day terms, why give up so so much fun for a bunch of fuddy-duddies? Now, calling Christians fuddy-duddies is being too kind. Peter says they speak evil of you. The word is blaspheme. They slander you. They attack your reputation. They speak evil of you because you no longer run with them. You don't go where they go. You don't do what they do. And they speak evil of you because they think that's strange. One 19th century divine captured the thought here, I think, quite well. He said, there is plenty of evidence from pagan as well as Christian sources that it was precisely the reluctance of Christians to participate in the routine of contemporary life, particularly conventionally accepted amusements, civic ceremonies, and any function involving contact with idolatry, or what they consider immorality, that caused them to be hated, despised, and themselves suspected of illicit practices. Boy, this was, this was now written in the 1800s. There's plenty of resource material that says they were so ostracized and accused of, wrongfully of illicit practices because they would not run with them particularly conventionally accepted amusement civic ceremonies and any function involving contact with idolatry or what they the christian considered immoral now you just you just take that one chew on that for a while and what would come to your mind and you'd be called strange if you said, I don't do that. I don't go there. Not interested. You're really odd. Thank the Lord I am. I'm supposed to be odd to this world. That's a privilege. And it's a blessing that I don't take lightly. The world thinks it ungodly and strange. Not ungodly, but actually strange. They wouldn't even think about godly or ungodly, but they would think it strange that a Christian actually wants to spend a lot of time in prayer and in the Word of God. They don't get that. And you want to know why? Because they have no understanding of... Of the sweetness of communing with the Lord. They have no conception of what that's like. To go into the presence of God and to pour out your heart to Him and have God talk to you from His Word. They think you're strange. It's strange to the ungodly, but for the Christian, there is in the bitterness of repentance, even the tears that are shed by the believer over his sin, there is a joy that the world cannot know. They would think that sorrowing over sin, oh, that's gloom. But tell me, have you not found that there's joy in repentance? Haven't you not found the joy that comes when you have wept over your sin? But they don't get that because they've never known repentance, they've never had a heart broken for sin. That's why they think it's all so strange. The lost have never known the happiness that comes from holiness. That's why they look for happiness everywhere else. But the only place you're going to find it is in holiness. Here's the question. Why do they think it's so strange? Why do they think that living to the will of God, wanting to obey the law of the Lord, turning away from idolatry and evil and drunkenness, why do they actually think that's a bad thing? It tells you something about them. It tells you that their minds are reprobate. They have a reprobate mind. Doesn't the scripture describe this lot as they they call evil good and good evil? They say that bitterness is sweet and sweet is bitterness. They call darkness light and light darkness. Why do they do that? Their minds are reprobate. They cannot judge rightly. But even with a reprobate mind, they also realize that because you don't run with them, your Christian life condemns them. They understand. When you say, I will not do that. I no longer go there. I no longer want this, but I want this. They understand you're saying, I have a different value system than you have. And I think yours is wrong. And I won't go there. And then the old pride kicks in. Your life's condemning me. These, and this is what Peter is saying, this was your old life. These are not the kind of people you want to run with, you want to fellowship with, you want to hang around. Shun them. Oh, evangelize them. But they're not your partners. They're not your friends. Robert Layden said, uh, an old divine Episcopalian, Whatsoever it is that draws away the heart from God, notice the statement, Whatsoever it is that draws the heart away from God, that how plausible soever doth debauch and destroy us. Whatever draws our heart away from God, no matter how plausible, how all right it seems, if it draws us away from God, it debauches and destroys us. And Peter is saying, arm yourselves against it. John Brown, Presbyterian Scottish minister, 19th century. How carefully should Christians guard against being in any degree again brought under the intoxicating influence of this present evil world, operating on unbridled natural inclination of being in any degree entangled or overcome by these deceitful worldly lusts? The phrase that struck me was these intoxicating influences. They are intoxicating. Oh, I can indulge a little drink. That's what he said. He found himself stone drunk. Just a little. I can indulge a little bit of the flesh. I can indulge a little bit of the things I did in the past. No, you can't. Third, the final motive for right living. Recall that payday is coming. Verses 5 and 6. Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? Let me stop there. The who there, who, are those mentioned in verse 4. Those who think it strange that Christians don't run with them, and those that speak evil of God's people. Now Peter says, Who shall give account to him? and is ready to judge. They will give an account to the judge of all the earth. That word give account, let me break it down. The word give means to pay back, recompense. The word account is logos. Word. Word. They will have to answer to God for what they have done, both in their lasciviousness, their sins, their neglect and rejection of God's law, and for what they had to say about God's people. They will have to give an answer to God because it will be required of them Imagine the scene for a moment, would you? Called before God to give an answer for all of your sin, your lusts, and your revelings, and your keg parties, and their maligning of His people. What's your answer? They've been listed. You did this and you said that. The judge says, What is your response? And you know what the scripture says? Every mouth will be stopped, they will be speechless, and there will be no defense, and there will be no advocate, there will be no one defending them at all for what they did. And that's what Peter is saying here. You remember that payday is coming. One day it's payday. Paul says it like this. We looked at this in the Bible class a couple of weeks ago. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses six through nine. He brings up the same scene. Since seeing it is righteous, a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, I will pay back. I will wreak vengeance upon those that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest. God will recompense rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's what Paul's saying. He, he's, he's 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 encouraging them to go on and encouraging them to stay at it and to live a holy life in spite of all that's being said about you and being done to you. Payday is coming. You just got to have the long view. That's hard for this present generation. In fact, it's hard for any generation to have the long view, but particularly, we're living in a day when everything is instant and now but it's the long view keep the long view that day is coming God will take care of them so Peter gives another right motive for right living arm yourselves and walk in the opposite direction of those people Because their day is coming. And and you don't want to be standing next to them on that day. You don't want to be on the left hand of of Christ on that day. Where the goats are. But payday is also coming for God's people. That's what verse 6 is about, I believe. You've come to yet another verse in 1 Peter, that is among the most difficult to interpret in all the New Testament. I mean, did you get it when you read it? For for this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Who is this the gospel preached to them that are dead? Well, you know, there's different opinions as who he's actually talking about. You have to come to your own conviction. Best you can, your understanding. And I believe that Peter there is talking about those who heard the gospel, those who were saved, but now have died. The gospel was preached to them... They were saved. They're now dead. The ungodly, the ungodly, these wicked, he's been talking about, they judged them. Because when you speak evil of someone, you are really judging their actions, their behavior. They spoke evil of them. They condemned them. And Peter, of course, may also be alluding to those who are martyred for their faith. That kind of dead being brought to pass. But the gospel was preached to them. But payday is coming for them as well. They will stand before the judge of the living and the dead, and he will answer for them. And what will be the answer from the judge for his people when that payday comes? All the wicked are there, all the ungodly. They've rejected it, and they are silent. Their mouths have been stopped. But when the judge speaks about the godly, the gospel that saved these people, gloriously changed, pursuing this life of holiness, he will say to them, here's what it's about, but live according to God in the Spirit. He will say to them, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. To those, everlasting, eternal destruction and damnation. To you, eternal life. That's your payday heyday there's the motive for right living if ever there was eternal life you go that course it's eternal death you go this course it's eternal life it's very simple brothers and sisters when it comes down to it we're supposed to be living for eternity that day N- not the temporal but the eternal may god use those three motives to stir you and me to pursue christ likeness in this present evil world let bow our heads in prayer let's all pray father in heaven we thank thee thou hast saved us from a life of abandonment to sin. We're no longer the same. We know we've been changed. We can say, we've had enough of sin to know what it is. We've had enough of that way of living to know where it ends. And we don't want to go down that path anymore. We thank Thee, Lord, and in mercy Thou didst teach us that lesson. Lord, we also are aware that there is a battle we're going to fight today and every day till we are glorified, and we must arm ourselves. So, Lord, we pray, we plead with Thee, set these old truths before Thy people. Set Jesus Christ before us that we might follow in his steps, and truly be a holy and happy people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.